The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara, along with my co-host, Jill. Hi there. For those of you just tuning in, we've been part of a true crime book club for years now and love discussing our books with each other and anyone else who might want to listen about murder. <laughs> Let's be honest, who doesn't want to talk about true crime and learn something in the process? We decided to turn our love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so that we can share with all of you. Each month we review and discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf. So what are we pulling off our murder shelf today? We're going to be discussing The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. The Trial of Lizzie Borden was one of the most sensational of the times in all the world's history. Taking place in the later part of the 19th century, 1893 to be exact, it was dubbed the Trial of the Century. That commentary means after 92 years of legal jurisprudence, this took the trophy. <laughs> yeah. After all of those trials that they probably had that t- at that time. They had a number. We love this book as not only does it dive deep into the trial of Lizzie Borden, featuring testimony from the inquest and trial, but it is also a fascinating social commentary of the times. Kara manages to bring legal documents and historical texts to life. Some parts are a little heavy on the detail, but Kara keeps you moving along with twists and turns that'll make you feel like you're in a television courtroom drama. As you might know, our book club meets fairly regularly, roughly every month and a half or so. Jill, as the leader of our book club, made this one special. She not only welcomed us into our home, luring us in with bottomless mimosas and homemade quiche, <laughs> very book club I know, but Jill was able to set up an interview with Kara. We'll be putting in some audio clips of our discussion as they relate to our conversation. As true crime enthusiasts, I think we got so hung up on the whodunit and the evidence that we almost forgot to discuss the trial. Now, a little bit about Kara. Uh, this is Kara's first book. Uh, for those of you not reading along or skipped over the acknowledgement section, don't do that. Don't. Yeah. Kara has been researching and working on the trial of Lizzie Borden for almost 20 years. All right, however, she's no stranger to writing in general. She's penned articles that have been featured in the Boston Globe, the Raleigh News and Observer, the Yale Journal of Law and Humanities, Kara has a PhD from Oxford University and a JD from Stanford Law School. So many degrees. <laughs> really? Uh, she's previously clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States and served as a legal advisor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague. All right, this is one amazing accomplished mm-hmm. woman. So now we get to the preliminary hearing. And Kara again uses her legal background to explain what a preliminary hearing is. Unlike the inquest, the preliminary hearing was held to determine if the prosecution had sufficient evidence of a serious crime to try the accused in superior court. While a district court heard less serious crimes and misdemeanors, the superior court heard felonies. In this case, the judge would bind over the defendant for trial. So unlike the secret inquest, the preliminary hearing was a public affair. And here, the prosecution only had to demonstrate probable cause with the defense gaining a sense of what the prosecution had even if it hadn't yet reached the level of guilty without a reasonable doubt. And if you haven't read the book, you really, really should. Kara takes the time to j- introduce you to all of the major players and describes them in wonderful detail. 
for our sake, because we don't want you to have a three-hour episode, we're going to try to be as succinct as possible when we're going through this. There's just so many details throughout the inquest, preliminary hearing, and the trial that just kind of repeat, but they're all so very important. We just want to make sure that you don't forget. Lizzie's defense. First, we have Andrew Jennings, their family lawyer. And Jenny's first argument of the hearing was with Judge Blaisdell, who was the judge at the inquest. He would also be acting judge for Lizzie's preliminary hearing. Like, oh shit, you already have a bias. Why would you be doing this again? Yeah. Isn't there anybody else that can do this, really? Yeah, so he already has prior knowledge, which I guess is fine, but he shouldn't be presiding over the trial. But Jennings' argument doesn't work. No. He ends up being the judge for the trial. Yep. We also have Melvin O. Adams, who's a Boston lawyer and assistant district attorney in Suffolk County. He was described as a handsome man with a black mustache, handsome brown eyes. Love that mustache. He had a good mustache. Love that mustache. He would have the task of cross-examining state's key witnesses, especially those with a scientific or medical background. Rounding out Lizzie's dream team, a powerful triumvirate, was George D. Robinson. We won't see him until the trial, but he's a former Republican congressman and governor of Massachusetts, one of the most popular men of the state. Hiring Robinson raised Lizzie's spirits considerably as he thoroughly believed in her innocence. And he's most noted for being able to bend witnesses to his will and get them to talk. Mm-hmm. And quote, he is a confidential and chatty as a gossip, and his witness becomes very desirous of pleasing him and is easily led into a trap. So then we also have the prosecution. So we already have met District Attorney Hosea Knowlton, who was like the war horse. Snorts (laughs) like a war horse. So he must have been just an imposing figure. And he was also a minister's son. And you'll see if when you read the book, just how much eloquence he has in actually delivering Mm -hmm. his speech, closing arguments, opening statements. You can tell this was his major point is Lizzie was home alone and to emphasize Lizzie's attempt to buy poison the day before the murders. He goes with sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde belief in Lizzie. Yeah, he does. The next two figures will come in for the trial, so he's by himself during the preliminary hearing. But Attorney General Albert Pillsbury, who's in charge of this whole thing because he's the Attorney General, he only comes in a little bit here. As the Attorney General, he's expected to prosecute the case personally, But he's actually a sick man, unbeknownst to everybody else. And so he recruits a young district attorney from Essex County, whose name is William Moody. And for him, being a part of the Borden trial was actually a stepping stone to a bright career. He would later go on to be appointed by Teddy Roosevelt, who was a personal friend, as Secretary of the Navy and the Attorney General of the United States. Pretty impressive players. Yes. All 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 six of them. them. All of them. Yeah. One of the best things about this book is that we get a bit of gossip every morning before the day starts. I just love it. It's just such an eye-opening picture. Absolutely. The women show up to the courtroom in the crowds, and they're in their fashion best. We have E.H. Porter of Fall River Daily Globe reporting on the calicos mixing with silk. The audience includes the rich and wealthy members, not only of Fall River, but Massachusetts as a whole. Mm -hmm. In addition to the distinguished women who took up the majority of the room, Outside, an immense delegation of mill women. And Lizzie also dressed with care in blue bonnet, trimmed with ribbons, small flowers, blue veil, plain blue serge gown, narrow skirt, draped with a train, close-fitting bodice. I mean, whatever she wore was was reported (laughs) on every single day. It's really Project Runway, 19th century version, 
judiciary runway. <laughs> it, it really is. Yes. Knowlton's strategy was to prove that no one else had motive or opportunity to kill Abby and Andrew. Knowlton actually requested a continuance because the medical experts were not yet ready. So this was day one. Yeah. And they're already requesting a continuance. Yes. He couldn't even start. Right. But we were definitely going to get into the medical juicy details. So Lizzie remains at the Fall River Police Station thinking the trial would resume and receives some visitors that include her sister and some local friends. And a curious incident takes place, and we're going to be introduced to Matron Reagan, who's in charge of Lizzie, who overhears an argument between her and Emma. Emma, you've given me away. I only told Mr. Jennings what I thought he ought to know. You have, and I will let you see I won't give one inch. So exactly what that was about, we're not sure. Attorney Jennings drafts a statement for Matron Reagan to sign, stating that the argument never took place. Well, she refuses to do that. Go figure. (laughs) And brings the matter to Marsha Hilliard's attention. Hilliard advises her, don't sign anything and don't speak of the matter until you're called to testify for the state. What about that? You've given me away? Yeah, I I don't know, but that's going to be a major point as we move through to the trial. So now on day two, Lizzie couldn't have been more self-controlled which we talk about, the reporters are going to talk about. Other women present seemed unfazed by the gravity of the situation as well. They're just chattering away in the heat of the courthouse. Sounds like when we watch our murder documentaries, you know? Yes. We're just Just so nonchalant about it. Just rolling with it. So now we're going to get into one of the first experts, uh, Dr. William Dolan. He's the first medical expert that's called, and he's the Bristol County Medical Examiner. This is his first year as medical examiner, and he's on the scene, and he just describes it as ghastly, especially Andrew's head. So he was one of the first to examine the bodies on August 4th, and direct examination went well for the prosecution. Jennings objects only once because he's reading from his notes. Mm -hmm. So could you imagine trying to recite this all from a year earlier? But now he's going to recite it from memory. Okay, Jennings, I can play your game too. Yeah, I can tell you what I remember too, yeah. What he'll establish and what other medical examiners will concur with is that Abby was killed first. And this is essential for Nolan to establish. And on cross-examination, it doesn't go so well with Adams, who again was hired for medical testimony. Adams questions the way the autopsy was conducted. As you'd expect, this becomes a really adversarial process, and Adams almost kind of beats him down because there's a lack of a full report. You know, you can imagine back in the day, maybe things were not so stressed on making sure they had A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's also revealed that the heads of the bodies had been removed. Removed. Ugh. I don't think Lizzie and Emma were ever told that the bodies were never buried, buried after buried. the funeral. Right. I mean, they do remember that. They think they're buried. Yeah. So this was uh, because they wanted to clean the skulls and they were actually in his possession. So the bodies were buried headless. And this was a major shocker for everyone. They literally bring the skulls out. Emma and Lizzie have no idea. Emma begins to cry. And Lizzie actually looks startled for the first time, but she quickly regains her composure. But this is the first time they see this. So after this bit of a spectacle where we have skulls in the courtroom now, Bridget Sullivan comes out and she is going to be a key witness. Kara states that most notably, Emma Borden sat with her gloved hand shading her eyes. So she's looking like you can't really see me as we're we're listening to us, but probably throwing shade at poor Bridget. And Lizzie's face betrays a slight flush which those who have studied her features have learned to know as an indication of emotion. So they're like, 
girl, what are you going to say up there, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are you saying? So she testifies that she had locked the screen door and the wooden door at the back of the house Wednesday night, and they were still locked Thursday morning. She also comments that she was ill, as was the rest of the household, and it could have been food poisoning. And she actually says she vomits out back before doing her chores and continuing. So she's unsure if she actually relocked the door, which is a key point. Dun, dun, dun. She helps Andrew unlock the door, hears Lizzie laugh from the top of the stairs. And then Lizzie and Andrew talk about the mail. He asks her, and she goes back to ironing handkerchiefs in the dining room. Did Lizzie try to get her out of the house when Andrew was there? Potentially. She told her about a sale of clothing that was going on. So this kind of sets up another aspect of premeditation, perhaps, on Lizzie's part. Like, shoo-shoo. We have a sick sick note. We're trying to get Bridget out of the house to go buy some things. And Bridget also says she didn't necessarily buy the sick note. Why would Abby tell Lizzie she was going out if they rarely spoke to one another? Wouldn't she have told Bridget? And so the final and definitive information that we get is Bridget said Lizzie said she had heard a groan before coming back into the house from the barn and discovered her father's body, and she did not see Lizzie cry at all the days of the murders. It's a very interesting response to grief. but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that one. I guess we'll see as we move on. Yep. So we begin here with Eli Benz. He's the druggist at D.R. Smith's. Now, do you recall we talked about the incident where someone had tried to buy prussic acid? Mm-hmm. Well, Eli recognized her more by voice alone. Fun. Yeah, he couldn't identify her dress or her hat or anything else. And while he is testifying and talking, Lizzie was overheard to say, I have never been in that man's store in my life. Mm-hmm. So Adams had a little fun with him. Did you ever mistake one person for another? You know, find that you've made a mistake in identification? And Benz is like, nope, nope, nope. I I don't remember any such thing. Jennings turns up two known circumstances that completely blow his credibility. Once he had bet that someone had been killed in an accident he witnessed, and that man was alive. And when Benz saw him, he was shocked. And then he mistake someone who had actually hit him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he looks like he's mistaking a lot of people. His credibility suffers. It turns out also that there were two other accounts of women looking to buy prussic acid or arsenic. Mm -hmm. And one was actually the wife of Inspector McCaffrey. And she did resemble Lizzie a little bit. Yeah. What is with all the women running around trying to buy prussic acid? Well, I know the wife of Inspector McCaffrey was trying to take down the drugstores for some reason or another. So that was why she was doing it. It was like an undercover coup. Everyone else, I don't know. Maybe they were trying to poison their husbands because they were being rude to them. They're nuts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, okay. Got to wonder about that. I, for the record, have never tried to buy prussic acid. I've never tried to buy poison. Yeah. Um, of any kind. Yeah, no. Hasn't. Mm-hmm. That occurred to me. Now, we also have the testimony of Professor Edward Stickney Wood. He's a Harvard chemist, and he's important because he examined the stomach contents. Were the Bordens actually poisoned? Mm -hmm. And no, no, they were not poisoned. There was no poison found in their stomach. He also could not identify what the murder weapon was, which is going to be and continue to be a huge problem for the prosecution. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, Knowlton is going to read the inquest testimony for two solid hours. <sighs> and we already know how frustrating that was the first time. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, so even Lizzie's supporters, who 100% believed in her innocence, 
found this a little bit lackluster with her runaround, Mm -hmm. and the prosecution rested. So we're done. Yep, with that part. What we're going to learn at trial is that this inquest testimony is actually not going to be permitted. Mm -hmm. Now, the question I had to ask is, if it had not been permitted here, would she have even been indicted? That's a great question, because this was a huge part of that. Right. Her runaround, inconsistent mm-hmm. answers, and driving just, people just crazy. Just odd behavior. So after the prosecution rests, the defense, they come up and they're like, listen, no murder weapon. Zero blood is found on Lizzie. And Jennings, who speaks on Lizzie's behalf, starts to describe her relationship with her father, which seemed like a loving one. And Lizzie bursts into tears. Basically, the inquest testimony that we had just read through for two hours was just showing Lizzie on the rack that she was just being coerced into this testimony. And essentially what they wanted to prove was that every blow showed that the person who wielded this hatchet was a person of experience with the instrument. No hand could strike those blows that had not a powerful wrist and experience in handling a hatchet. So again, no blood. No weapon, no nothing. We've got nothing. The lack of blood is going to remain a problem. Mm -hmm. So overall, expert medical witnesses conclude that the murder weapon was likely a hatchet or another sharp tool and that Abby had died prior to Andrew, roughly 90 minutes. Who benefited? Lizzie. Lizzie. Who had the opportunity? Lizzie. Lizzie. Her attempt to buy prussic acid was premeditation. And then she also expressed no emotion, yet she had just burst into tears about the relationship with her father. Exactly. So Judge Blaisdell advises that she was most likely guilty and was expected to wait on the action of the Superior Court. So again, we're not confirming guilt, but advise she's most likely guilty. Kara loves to contrast Lizzie to the men of the courtroom. She sits calm and apparently unmoved, while strong men lowered their heads. Weaker men wiped tears from their eyes. Yeah. Every woman in the courtroom sobbed and wept except one. Lizzie. I find it very funny that everyone looks to support her now as one of theirs. As a lower Borden, she had to work very hard to ingratiate herself into the upper crust of society. Now that she's accused of a murder, how dare a lady get accused of a crime? Well, we mustn't have that, you know? Never let a good scandal go to waste. It, yeah, and we're going to have another one come up here. This is great. So Monday, October 10th, the Boston Globe actually puts out a story called Lizzie Borden's Secret. And that secret was she was with child. Andrew knew... And he was going to throw her out if she did not tell him who the father was. That awful man that got her into trouble. Who knew? Oh my goodness. Could you imagine? So witnesses claim to see a hooded Lizzie in her stepmother's guest room at the time of the murder. So she's just going around cloaked, asking her stepmother. And that Lizzie and her uncle were in on together. And her uncle may have actually been the one. Don't say it. He may have been the one that was the father. (gasps) And that she even tried to buy Bridget's silence. So now we have incest, illicit pregnancy, hooded cloaked people. And bribery. But it's all a big fake. And Kara said, you know, it was compelling. It was damning. But it was the most gigantic fake ever laid before the reading public. So we're talking... Fake news. Yeah. 1892 version. Yep, just like, just like 2019. 2018, whatever you're in now. <laughs> um, and the article actually solidified that Lizzie was someone to be sympathized with and not one that we would think of as a deranged axe murderer. A heavy blow to the prosecution more sure. This definitely shifts public opinion. I can only imagine. Remember, everything that you do is governed by your social norms. 
So something like this and being printed in the newspaper for everybody to see because everyone's mm-hmm. locked in. Oh, I can't. They, they, they actually apologized to her, which is why it ended up being a really big blow to the prosecution. Wow. All right. So our grand jury's role here is to debate whether or not to indict or formally charge the defendant with a particular crime. It does not determine guilt or innocence. So the grand jury does indict Lizzie for the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. There are one of 14 murders that are going to occur in Massachusetts that year. Only 14? Only 14. <laughs> sorry. Only 14. And the vote was not unanimous. Okay. That's kind of interesting. Too. Yeah. How many people sit on a grand jury? It varies from state yeah. to state. Okay. I was on grand jury for every Tuesday for 18 weeks. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, no. I I did the same, and I feel like I was just sitting at a table with, like, maybe 14 people just listening yeah, to things. Yeah, it was two or three rows. Had to be 14. Okay, so probably or something like that. Yeah, I okay. just don't remember. A little bit bigger but than, it does, like, it, a regular size jury. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was definitely bigger. I, I just don't remember now. All right. Now, listen. This may be a bit tough for some of you. Now, guys, listen up. This is probably something that you don't want to hear about. And when we say guys, we mean men. I am talking about the men. Back in the day... At the time of Lizzie Borden, men were definitely not interested in this. But yes, we were speaking about one of those most natural things in the world to a woman, and it is her period. Back then, it was called fleas. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> fleas. Like the little bugs. Yes, fleas. You heard that. You heard it right. Yeah. One thing that Carrie is brilliant at is weaving the opinions of women of the time into the narrative, and it plays such an important role in the outcome of this trial. Today, when we talk about people getting hysterical, we're thinking of them laughing out loud. Mm -hmm. Hysterics at the day of Lizzie Borden was not about laughter, but was more about their biological ailments and how it impacted them psychologically. Hysteria occurred in prominent, young, unmarried women. Do you find me hysteric? Yes, you spinster, you. (laughs) Yes, resulting from a wandering womb. Yes, your womb was supposed to wander. So just walk around right out of there? It's just moving, <laughs> moving, pushing other organs out of the way. Think of it as a really intimate Achilles heel for women. Okay. Later, neurological causes would be assigned to this, but researchers would find no organic cause for the disorder, though there is a disorder. Mm-hmm. Understand, there is a disorder. Boston Advertiser wrote, It is an open secret in police circles that the government officers believe Miss Borden was insane at the time of the murders. It was because she had her period. Because she had her period. Kara really said it best. These gendered anatomical and physiological models result from, and in turn justify, contemporary attitudes about women's essential capabilities and psychology. Great quote from her. So, by introducing hysteria as this holy female illness, they could keep women in check and explain away any unwanted behavior. Like women who ask their parents. Yeah, don't do that because you are hysterical Mm -hmm. when women ask their parents. So, this was an explanation of the nature of women that were covered in criminal trials. The state of mind was essential in determining responsibility. And the most important factor in determining all of this is menstruation. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most shocking things to me. Kara drops this bomb. By far, the most important factor in evaluating responsibility is evidence of menstruation. It just blows my mind. 
Dr. Gross, who was an Austrian criminal psychologist, wrote that menstruation may bring women to terrible crimes, driven to do the most inconceivable things, even murder. Now, we know Lizzie was having fleas at the time, and this provides a very benign explanation for having a pail of bloody towels soaking in the downstairs washroom and a spot of blood that is found inside her petticoat. Just a spot of blood. A, a spot of blood. So we're just in time to muddy the waters a little bit more here. Oh boy. Especially now that we're talking about hysteria and women murdering while they're on their periods. Mm-hmm. But on May 30th, Another axe murder befalls Fall River. And this is a 23-year-old female that gets murdered. Her name is Bertha Manchester. There are 23 blows to the back of her head. Huh. Sounds familiar. Yeah? Yes. Gee. Like if we're talking about modus operandi? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, this is similar to one of the trials that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth Jordan, she dubs this guy as Jack the Chopper, which is kind of funny. We had Jack the Ripper ki- that around. That is kind of Cute. Yeah. And so Marshall Hillier dismisses any parallel with the Borden case because he believed that Lizzie was the culprit. Of well, of course, course he does. He does. Yeah. <laughs> he states that the Borden case seems premeditated and poor Bertha did not. And actually, a Portuguese farmhand named Correa de Mello was arrested and actually confesses to the murder. And his arrest actually feeds into this ugly sentiment that we were talking about earlier, that he was essentially a nativist nightmare. And he was what everyone deemed a criminal. He was an immigrant. He didn't look like them. He didn't sound like them. And this is xenophobic to the extreme. I guarantee you he's Catholic. Oh, yeah. Nativists wanted a longer time period between immigration and naturalization. And that's becoming an American citizen. They didn't necessarily want this. It wasn't particularly pretty here. So as jury selection begins on the trial for Lizzie, June 5th, 1893, the victim is described in the papers as a modest, retiring, self-sacrificing young woman. And then we also learn that DeMello was not responsible for the Bordens, as he was not even in the country yet. Not even in the country yet. So I guess we can throw that out there. But, throw it out the window. But, but, is the jury going to know? Nope, probably not, because they're sequestered, so they can't read the news anyways. So, another issue that arises is the venue. So, where are we going to hold this trial? Everyone's heard about it at this time, right? So, after a great debate, it's ultimately decided to hold the trial in New Bedford, which is about 15 miles east of Fall River. And the demand for news on this becomes so great that the courthouse needed to be essentially converted to accommodate the sheer amount of journalists that the case brought. So five extra tables are brought in and placed in the second floor courtroom in the area where we would normally find witnesses. The local papers for Fall River and New Bedford were given precedence. With the newspaper, New York World, getting all in a tizzy, part of the prisoner's dock was actually outfitted with another long table. So they're just taking up all the space with tables just for journalists to come (sighs) in and sit down. Oh, my God. So the wire services. So back in the day, we had newspapers. We had wires because we were still coming in with communication upgrades. They weren't so lucky. They were set up in the horseshit outback. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, for example, New York Sun reporter Julian Ralph, he disliked covering crime, but he did take pride in his reporting abilities. He had actually saved a young man from death row. The detectives in that particular case were making the evidence fit him rather than fit the crime. So detective stupidity. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Joseph Howard Jr., the Boston Globe and the New York Recorder, 
Now, this is a guy who had covered multiple murder trials over the last 30 years. He's probably the highest paid reporter at the time of the Borden trial. And he would write antidotes and he would make the readers feel that they were inside the courtroom. I am going to tell you about the cow. Mm -hmm. There was this cow who was always mooing uh, and would frequently interrupt the judge, drowning out the responses of the witnesses. That's how loud Mm -hmm. this cow was outside. The cow didn't care. Yeah, no, he didn't care, but that's how loud. I mean, I don't think of cows necessarily as being that loud that mm-hmm. we could hear you. But remember, heat windows are open, mm-hmm. and the cow is actually Very interrupting hot. the course of the trial. I just think this is the way that he really captured literally what was mm-hmm. happening from the cow movie. Yeah, which is like Julian and Joseph were the two of the most prominent journalists of the time, and literally a lot of the book and quotes from the trial come from them. Yes. Now, they also made sure that they focused on the characters, the plot, the setting, the dialogue, dramatic pacing, all the literary elements. This was called new journalism, Mm -hmm. and it really did drive that hunger for more and more and more and more information about Lizzie and the trial. And surprise, guess what? There were women journalists covering these stories, too. Yes, in the Victorian era. Elizabeth Jordan of New York World, she was one of them. Convent educated in Milwaukee mm. and decides to go to pursue journalism in New York. One. Yeah. She winds up impromptu meeting with President Harrison's wife and was tasked with getting a in the life of story. Mm-hmm. So she walked right up to the door and knocked and wound up hanging out at the beach with her and her grandson. And what big ovum go girl? I know. She just went right for it. And she did. And she would later become the editor of Harper's Bazaar one of these trailblazing women. She would write uh, our first fiction stories, too. Uh, strangely enough, about a woman who was on trial for murder, and she ended up confessing to the female reporter. I wonder if she thought Lizzie would do this. Maybe she was <laughs> dropping hints. Maybe. Mm-hmm. There was also Anna Page Scott, Amy Robstart. I'm just really glad that Kara points these women out. Good for her. They did make a contribution to the trial and the coverage. Yeah, absolutely. And we get a lot from Elizabeth Jordan, too, as we move forward. It really made this book so great because we get that anecdotal evidence from people who are actually sitting there. Now, Kara tells us there are about 888 female reporters in 1890. Mm -hmm. This is going to increase 2,193 at the turn of the century. That's still only 10%. But it still shows you that they are increasing in number. They're starting to make an impact. 10%? Yeah, absolutely. Just the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Not bad. (laughs) So now getting to some of the days of the trial where anytime Lizzie comes in, we kind of note her appearance. We know a lot of things that people are doing outside of the courtroom milling about. So Lizzie wears black gloves her first day. Do you think OJ was channeling her? Yeah. You never know. We could have. Yeah. But it's funny. She kind of comes in and says, from what Julian Ralph reported, Lizzie Borden herself was a bit of a disappointment the first day of trial. She is, in truth, a very plain-looking old maid. Again, 32. Come on. She may be likened to a typical school marm, plain, practical, and with a face that shows the deep lines of either care or habitually low spirits. There is nothing wicked or criminal or hard in her features. So it goes against the criminologist, the Italian one, 
Yeah, Lombardo, who said again, it was nature. You were born with yep, your sloping forehead and big eyebrows and goggly ears. And yeah, I, I guess they're expecting wild, Google eyed maniacs who are drooling and sputtering or something. And they're just getting this composed yeah. spinster. I mean, it just seems Lizzie was so plain in her looks. How could she commit a crime unless her period literally drove her insane to the point of murder? I mean, other reports would make her out to be built to handle an axe and be less kind to her than Ralph Howard or Jordan would be. So Kara goes on to explain, too, that in Massachusetts, capital cases, so these are cases that would result in the defendant being put to death, were heard by a panel of three superior court judges. These judges were selected by a chief judge. The three judges selected had all practiced law for more than 20 years and had even been admitted to the bar before Lizzie was born. They have experience. They know what they're doing. Yeah. So those judges were going to be Chief Justice Albert Maiden, Associate Justice Caleb Blodgett, and Associate Justice Justin Dewey. And according to Joe Howard, these three men were precisely the kind of trio an innocent man would like to be tried by, or woman in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's important to keep context in mind when pondering this case, because there's already an extreme prejudice regarding Lizzie Borden, both for and against, in Fall River. The jewelry pool would consist of men pulled from other areas of Bristol County. Of course, all 150 of the prospective jurors are going to be men. Remember, women couldn't vote at this time. Mm-hmm. Men ran the world, and women were subject to hysteria and couldn't and couldn't fend for themselves properly. How could they be on a jury? I don't know. Oh Crazy. my gosh. Crazy. Absurd. Women would actually not receive the right to serve on a jury until 1950 in the United States and 1951 in Massachusetts. <laughs> so out of the 150 solid New England characters at jury selection... At least one was going to be an African-American as they had the right to serve on a jury since 1860 in Massachusetts. It was also going to be made to be an uncomfortable experience for them. The prospective juror was made to stand in an open area as they are essentially interrogated by the judge, not like the lawyers in other jurisdictions. Were they related to the prisoner? Had they formerly expressed an opinion on the guilt or innocence of the defendant? Kara notes that 35 men have came to unflappable conclusions regarding the case. How did they feel about the death penalty? Well, again, we come in noting that 19 were dismissed due to their views regarding capital punishment. Hmm. Nolan also takes the lead here in jury selection, making fair and rather accurate assessments of prospective jurors. Jennings would be in charge for the defense. He would always look to Lizzie to make decisions of the men who would be in charge of her fate. So he's really taking her consideration into account, which is nice. It seemed that the defense were trying to not let any Irishmen onto the jury. It might be due to how Bridget was being treated in this process. But one, John C. Flynn made up one of the 12. All in all, the jury consisted of six farmers, three mechanics, and two manufacturers. Charles Richards, a real estate owner, rounded out the 12 angry men as foreman. While the defense may have been trying to keep an Irishman off the jury, the foreman that was ultimately selected was considered doubtful by the prosecution. They were going to be sequestered at the Parker Hotel for the duration of the trial. Wait, wait, wait. You're not going to believe this. Jury selection took nine hours. Hmm. They went through 101 names and were done. So that's just a day. One day. One day. One day. Okay. One day just absolutely blew my mind. So we're doing something wrong. Is that what you're saying? Right. Today it takes weeks, even months. We've really got to be doing something wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It shouldn't take nearly that long, right? Right. You've got it. So Moody gives his opening statement, states plainly the impossibility of the crime and the perpetrator. So what are the facts for the prosecution? He reiterates the tension in the house. Lizzie sharply corrects anyone who calls Abby her mother. Mm -hmm. She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. And then gives the jury an exhaustive layout of the house. 
Now we come to the murder weapon, and this is going to be a problem, a continual problem. Moody had a small hatchet broken off at the base with a wooden handle, and it's believed to be the murder weapon, the handleless hatchet. And it's unusual because it's covered with adhesions of dust of ash, covering it more or less on all sides. The break was also new. So Moody's next move is to do something that's unprecedented at the time. He brings out a black bag. What's in the box? Mm. I know it's a movie reference. It's not a it's not a box it's a bag. It's, it's a bag, but inside the bag are the skulls of the deceased Bordens. Lizzie actually faints. Mm-hmm. Boom. She goes over. Some emotions from the girl. Some emotions. Female feeling. We've We've always seen emotion. We've seen crying now, and she's just completely keeled over. Mm -hmm. They pull out the smelling salts. She composes herself. She looks really clammy, but things pick up in literally five minutes. Today, they'd have canceled court for the rest of the day. (laughs) She'd be in the hospital. (laughs) She'd be getting a complete evaluation, MRIs. I mean, it'd be the most involved thing in the world. So the jury is now instructed that they're going to go to Fall River and get the layout of the land. And take a nice little field trip. Right? Tour the hot spots. Pun intended, because it is really hot. <laughs> it's friggin' hot. It, it, full heat of the midday sun. They're going through the house. Procession of men and women. Reporters following along. Walking along to all the relevant destinations. But it is going to provide a nice little break in the monotony of the lives of everybody in Fall yeah. River. Because we have this jury. Karen notes that there are about 350 people waiting for the jury to arrive at the Borden home on 2nd Avenue, which is a mere 1,300 feet from the police station. This brazen crime of this magnitude and ferocity committed on a busy street in broad daylight down the street from the police station. Yeah. The Boston Globe would print a bird's eye view of the Borden home in its vicinity. The Boston Globe would print a bird's eye view of the Borden house in its vicinity with the heading of cut this out and keep it. So it was literally like a clip that they wanted you to cut out and keep it. And it was just like an overview of everything. So kind of like a little map. It's it's a map and it's almost a way to memorialize it and keep it. So the next day, the Fall River Daily Globe runs a cutesy little number. Where to look for your wife? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, She's not run off with another man and definitely not murdered by an axe fiend. But she's just in the throng of females waiting to be admitted to the Lizzie Borden trial. Called Valentines and Daisies, this day was dubbed as Women's Day. Women deserting their homes, duty to their husbands, just to observe a trial? Yeah, these priorities are fascinating right around here. They obviously didn't have Netflix. Good for them! <laughs> so today, members of the household were scheduled to testify, namely John Morris and Bridget Sullivan. The first one up is going to be Thomas Kiernan. He was actually touching base previously, but he's called back to complete his testimony. And this is important because he's an engineer and he's responsible for producing the plans of the Borden home and other diagrams that are going to be used as exhibits throughout the trial for the prosecution. During cross-examination, Jennings asked about an experiment that Kiernan conducted, which seemed to be fairly out of scope with what he was paid to be doing. Remember, Bridget recalls Lizzie is coming down the stairs when Andrew came home and was locked out of the house. Abby would have already been dead by then. Again, would she have seen the body? Not according to Kiernan's experiment. An assistant laid down on the floor in the guest room in the spot where Abby's body was found. From the vantage point of one walking down the stairs, only when walking up, if you were almost looking for it, you could see the body. He also asked another worker to stand inside the front hall door, theoretically where a potential unknown person could have been hiding for almost two hours between Abby and Andrew's deaths. And while the prosecution objected to this, Kiernan was able to testify that the door was easily shut and even when slightly opened, 
the man was not easily seen or maybe not even seen, not seen at all. Could just be hiding from various points in the hall. And just everyone's turning into an armchair sleuth. Like, he didn't have to do that, but that's pretty powerful for the defense right there. It confirms what my picture shows when Mm -hmm. I walked up the stairs. And I walked up the stairs going down. Couldn't see it at all. But going up, you know, if you're looking around, could not, could not really see. And so now we have John Morris, the uncle, who psychics predicted that they were, he was in on it with Lizzie, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're expecting a lot more here, but he's literally only asked a bunch of irrelevant questions like, who cooked you breakfast and what did you eat? It's really anticlimactic. Best alibi ever. I know, you couldn't really go anywhere. (laughs) Six priests. Protestant or Catholic? Catholic, I think. Catholic? Oh, yeah, they would be only called priests. Yeah, not reverend, priest. There we go. So... Bridget Sullivan gets up on the stand, and Joe Howard describes her as being a sensation. Sensation. Now, where she had been since the murders had taken place had been a complete mystery. She was actually employed at the New Bedford Jail and had been faring fairly well upon leaving the Borden household. Good for you, Bridget. We know she's at the house with Lizzie when the murders take place, but was she an accomplice? So, the Monday prior was washing day. Bridget confirms that the cellar door was locked from the inside the preceding Tuesday and up until the time of the murders. And Moody concludes that no outsider could have been in the house on that Thursday. Now, we know Abby asked her to wash the windows. Lizzie says to her, however, you needn't lock the door. I'll be out and around, but you can lock it if you want to. So that's an interesting reference to the doors being locked Mm -hmm. or unlocked, which is going to continue to be a bone of contention. So Bridget advises that she had to go in and out for six to seven buckets of water while she is washing the windows, which mm-hmm. again would have made it difficult for an outsider to gain entry because she's literally moving in and out mm-hmm. of the house. Finishing the outside windows, she moves inside and begins washing in the sitting room. And this is when she hears Mr. Borden trying to get in the front door, which is bolted from the inside. She swears and lets him in. Lizzie, laughing at Bridget cursing as she's coming down the stairs, and Bridget goes to finish in the sitting room windows. Lizzie asks her father about the mail and tells her father that Abby has gone out. Andrew went into the kitchen, retrieved his key from the sitting room, went up to his bedroom. Lizzie starts ironing in the dining room. She tells Bridget at the time that she should lock the door now, as Mrs. Borden is out, and Lizzie may go out too. Oh, and there's a sale at Sargent's. Eight cents a yard and a really good deal. It's interesting because there was previous testimony where she had told Bridget that she should go out, not that she was going to go out. And then we have, oh, you don't need to lock the door, but you should lock the door. Yeah, Don't lock it here, but now you should lock it here. We're not talking hours between these statements. Now, feeling ill, Bridget's really not interested in the the sale. She goes up to her room and she lies down. Later that morning, Lizzie calls for Bridget. Father is dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Bridget rushes down, sees Lizzie standing by the screen door of the house, and is called to get Dr. Bowen. Bridget asks where she's been. Lizzie says she's in the backyard, heard a groan. Oh, now go get Alice Russell, one of Lizzie's closest friends. By the time Bridget returns, Adelaide Churchill and Dr. Bowen have arrived. Adelaide is in the kitchen with Lizzie. Dr. Bowen emerges from the sitting room and announces that Andrew has been murdered. Mrs. Churchill asks Abby and Lizzie, um, uh, Mrs. Churchill asks about Abby 
and Lizzie suggests that she thinks she might have heard her come back. Now, Bridget did not want to go look for Abby by herself. Well, especially since Andrew, poor Andrew is in the sitting room murdered. Right, but Mrs. Churchill says, listen, I will go with you. That curtain twitcher. She just wants to find a body, I well, think. Of course. She's, yeah, she's a little bit nosy one, huh? Mm-hmm. And this is where the two of them discover Abby lying under the bed. Now, Mr. Robinson is, again, very charming, and he's got this very confident manner, and he's trying to elicit very positive testimony from Bridget. She does admit that she intended to leave employment on three separate occasions, but that Abby had convinced her to stay. And she stated during the inquest that she had not been sure if the lock on the screen door on the side of the house had been locked, but now she's sure that it had been. I don't think anyone's really sure on what yeah, locks were no, locked yeah, anywhere. There's too many point. locks in the house. Yeah. The problem with having so many locks is you're bound to forget one mm-hmm. and think that you have because you got eight, but there's ten. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Jordan, a reporter, wrote that one by one, the prosecution has bolted every door of the house and left every avenue of approach to the house impeded. But Bridget left that one door open mm-hmm. and admits she wasn't on watch for people. Of course not. Why would you be? Yeah, she's washing windows. I'm, yeah. I'm not looking around for people coming and going. And Robinson did point out the lack of blood on Lizzie. And Bridget even reported that Lizzie's hair was in perfect order. Mm -hmm. You know, you might muster hair a little bit if you're axing people in the face. Moody redirected questions of Lizzie's morning blue dress, seeking to clarify that she was wearing the blue dress and that later she had changed into the pink wrapper. But didn't they say that she was wearing a silk blouse with a dark navy skirt? I don't think anybody knows anymore. But she did, yes. She was wearing clothes? Yes. She she was actually wearing clothes. We think. Yeah. We, we think oh, she was sure. wearing clothes, yeah. yeah okay. We just don't know what color blue, what she... I don't know. I, I, I don't know. So, while it seemed that there was complete control over the courtroom, outside was more or less chaos. <laughs> and the police ended up having to construct temporary barriers made up of rope that stretched from the main pillars of the courthouse to prevent spectators from entering. They have a kind of system where they're kind of staunch in the flow of the public, but... It sometimes just doesn't work. But those who could not gain access were content to sit on the lawn of the courthouse or neighboring houses enjoying picnics in the summer heat. Just sounds like a pleasant thing to do. Do these people work? Yeah, they're picnicking at the murder trial. Yes. Perfect. You just get your nice hunk of cheese, some bread, you're good to go. Tailgate. So, so now we get to the testimony of Dr. Seabury Bowen. And we've heard a lot from him, but just to recap as he does make some pivotal points here. So he states that Lizzie told him she had seen no one as she had been in the barn. He also reported the death to Officer Allen and then telegraphed Emma to let her know the news. So Emma was out of town. And when he returned, Mrs. Churchill advised that they had found Abby's body upstairs. When he went to go inspect the body, he thought she may have fainted based on the position in which she was found. So she was face down on her stomach. Mm -hmm. But then he saw the blood. And knew she was dead. And asked about Lizzie's clothes. Oh my god, more Lizzie's clothes. <laughs> I know, clothes. I know. Everyone was in agreement that she had gone upstairs to change her clothes after the bodies were discovered. And while being questioned by the police, she was wearing a pink wrapper. Previously, she had been in some type of blue dress. Dr. Bowen had no friggin' clue. <laughs> no friggin' clue. And because he, he was examining dead bodies? Yeah, and he said yeah, she was wearing a dress of drab calico. 
Yeah. It, yeah, he probably doesn't know. Yeah. Bridget would actually be recalled to testify that Lizzie was wearing a blue calico dress with cloverleaf figure and then changes into a gingham dress, plain blue with a white border. Two blue dresses. Blue dress? But what happened to the pink dress? Yeah, I don't know. But the memory recall, though, I mean, we think that this is very detailed when she recalls these two dresses, but nobody knows what the heck she's wearing. No one knows what she's wearing. So, Melvin Adams establishes that Dr. Bowen did not see Abby's body as he climbed the front stairs. Nope. Again, this is a point that is made. Important. Yep. Dr. Bowen also gives Lizzie something for her nerves. So, he gives her a little cocktail of bromocaffeine, which is an... Effervescent. Yeah, it's kind of solid. It helps with headaches, usually. And then, later that week, he also gives her an eighth of a grain of morphine to be taken before bed. Now, Kara explains that a grain is the standard apothecary measurement by weight, and Dr. Bowen's initial dose was equivalent to 8 milligrams of morphine. Have you ever been given morphine for pain? I have not. I was given morphine for pain once, and they injected it in my IV, Mm -hmm. and I was, boom, out like a light drool coming down. Well, do you think that was just because they injected it right into your bloodstream as opposed to being taken this way? Well, the goal was to make me go to sleep and Mm -hmm. calm down and relax, but... Morphine is nothing to sneeze at. It's intense. Well, so here's the thing, though. He doubles the dose eventually. Doubles it. So it's the equivalent of 16 milligrams that were being administered to Lizzie throughout the inquest. So we think that maybe this could have affected her testimony. Yeah, think. But today, for mild to severe pain, the average dose of morphine given to adults was roughly 10 to 30 milligrams every four hours. So this is not even doubled a very big dose. But I don't know too much about side effects from this, but Bowen does con- confirm that in higher dosages, morphine can affect memory and cause hallucinations. So the important piece of evidence to note, though, here is that Dr. Bowen only witnessed Lizzie taking the bromo caffeine and not the morphine. So she was given it. We're not sure if she took it. Mm-hmm. It would explain a lot of things, but we don't know if she actually physically took it or not. Well... It would explain some things. Mm-hmm. Well, Adelaide Churchill is called to the stand. Curtain twitcher. The curtain twitcher. Oh my God, I love that. And, quote, no May Day queen was ever happier than Sister Churchill on the stand. Love it. Yep. She's first on the scene after she looked out that window and saw Lizzie looking agitated. And she agreed that Lizzie was wearing not the blue dress. Oh, my God. <laughs> not the blue dress that the prosecution said, but a light blue and white mixed with the groundwork woven together with the navy blue diamond panier. Whatever the hell she was wearing, it did not have any blood on it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Alice Russell is called to the stand. She is a very, very close friend of both Emma and Lizzie's. Uh, after Dr. Bowen, she was the, one of the first people that Lizzie asked to come. She will stay at their house after the murders and the funerals for the next few days. Now, what is significant is this friendship comes to a screeching halt after the grand jury finds out from Alice that Lizzie burned the dress Sunday after the murders. Wait, this is the first time we're hearing about this in the trial. Yes. Alice told them and testified that Lizzie burned the dress. She never told this to the police. What dress was it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was a blue dress with sequins and a feather boa of hot pink. I mean, we don't have any idea what dress it is, but she burned this blue dress. She never told the police. She never mentioned it during the inquest. 
She never mentioned it at her first appearance before the grand jury, but she winds up consulting a lawyer to see if she should unburden her conscience. And after being recalled to the grand jury, she makes her statement, her visits to the jail end, and she is effectively dead to the Borden girls. Now, her change of heart would ripple through this group of friends, like, you know, that pebble going in the pond. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Johnson, another friend who refused to tell the police what was in the burned letter, she also stopped visiting Lizzie in the jail. Huh. All right. Cellar door. News dealer John Cunningham, when he got there, found the door securely locked and there were no tracks in the backyard. McHenry, he noticed that there were spider webs across the door. Had to be a week's worth. It's so funny because, as you know, we're reading about the inquest preliminary hearing, the trial. We do know that, like, Bridget may or may not have had that door locked. And Charles Sawyer, he says that he locks the door at some point. So Mm -hmm. who knows what was going on here? Yeah, I I can't keep track on that door, whether it's open, locked, closed. Both um, officers George Allen and Deputy Sheriff Francis Wexton, front doors were locked and bolted. So I didn't see Lizzie crying at all during any of this. They did enter into exhibit a blood-soaked handkerchief, which was found at Abby's feet. Lizzie, of course, averts her eyes and stares at the floor when all this is going on. Mm-hmm. Now, Robinson wanted to hear what Wexon was doing inside the Borden house, because he saw a man's hat hanging on a fence, and after climbing over the fence, he saw two men at work. The men didn't seem to be doing anything. The fact was that he could easily get over the fence, approved an acceptable avenue of escape for potential perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Okay. We get it. Sure. We can go that way. We know someone else who's been hopping fences. I was just going to say, we know some other fence jumpers, too. Assistant Marshal John Fleet, he is the one who finds the handleless hatchet. Is he? And we... <laughs> This is He's the he first is. one to testify about he it. He is the first one to testify about finding this handless hatchet. And it does have this new break in the wood that's close to the head. Other tools were covered with dust and all, but this one had ash on both sides. Now, Fleet had done some damage with this testimony. Kara describes this particular day as, Thursday was the day that Lizzie Borden's luck seems to have run out. Witnesses reveal odd behavior for both before and after the murder, the whole question about dress. Dr. Bowen tried barring Marshall Fleet from accessing Lizzie's room. Because remember, they're up in that room together alone mm-hmm. with the door shut. But Lizzie did finally let him in and told him to make it as quick as possible. And then we find out about this dress burning. So this was not a good day Mm-mm. for Lizzie. It's only maybe going to get a little bit worse before it possibly gets better. But the next day, Marshall Fleet actually comes back. And he comes to stand along with other men in blue that are going to testify that day. So Joe Howard notes that nearly everyone who has taken an active part in the endeavor to fasten this awful crime upon Miss Borden has within the year been promoted. All of them. Huh. All of them. We come back to the fact that Fleet located the handleless hatchet. But the prosecution suggestion is that Lizzie killed her parents, broke the axe, burnt the handle in the stove, rubbed ash on the head, and stuck it in the box that it was found in. We talked about how easy it could have been to do all of these things with the axe, but at the same time, what would she have broken the handle off with? I'm not sure that you can just snap. Yeah, it would have, there probably would have been some force. But Fleet actually begins to unravel on the stand as he is once again subjected to Robinson's questioning. He's berated for not listing all of the officers and reporters present at the scene. 
He pulled some things from thin air, and then he had found the hatchet on the second trip to the cellar, not the first. And Robinson, and this is one of my favorite quotes, dismissed the witness with a wave of his hand as one might fling away an orange after tasting it and finding it in sip. That's Marshall Fleet. We'll say goodbye to him for now. Now we get to Captain Philip Harrington. He's captain now, but he wasn't captain back then. He's been promoted. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first officers on the scene. And he actually knew Andrew for more than 20 years. But due to the damages that Andrew had suffered to the Haddon face, he was practically unrecognizable. Harrington provides us with a moment of levity. And Jill, sorry, we're going back to the dress. Oh, God. The dresses Um, again. Here come the dresses. This is almost a year later. (laughs) Lizzie Borden hit her face in her fan and her shoulders silently shook. Then she could restrain herself no longer. She laughed so that her body trembled with the convulsion. Her face was very rosy all over from the strain of her efforts to control herself. Why? Because Harrington went through... Every single detail of the dress she had on at the time of the questioning, of the dress that she was potentially wearing in the morning, and it was asked, were you ever in the dressmaking business? I understand. That's how much detail he went into about these dresses. Patrolman by day, fashionista by night. Yeah. I wonder if he's married to a large woman. Maybe he wears her clothes? Well, you know, it could also be a more sinister something where um, he might have been recalling this from memory. I guess we can't make fun of him too much. No. But it did provide no, a no. moment of liberty. But oh. um, then he also was the one who had seen Dr. Bowen with the scraps of paper that... That was burned. Right? Yeah, he said it was burned. And he also, in this same instance, observed a rolled up paper about 12 inches long and no more than 2 inches in diameter. And it had been burned in the stove earlier. And they were thinking maybe this might have been the hatchet handle. Ah. So then we also have next on the stand, patrolman Michael Mullaly come up. And he is an absolute disaster for the prosecution. He states he saw the handle of the axe in the box of hatchets. What? Who? Wait, what? What do you mean? But Fleet said he took it out and then put it back. And then someone else thought maybe it was burned. Does everyone have a hatchet box? I don't know. This was... Handle, handle, who's got the handle? Yeah, who's who's got the handle? So Robinson actually demands the rest of the handle, the other piece. Where is it? Nolan's incredulous about this because he knew nothing about the fact that anyone had actually even seen the handle. <laughs> and Howard even states, if a bomb had fallen in the courtroom, more astonishment could not have been caused. Robinson actually demands that if the prosecution knows where it is, produce it, and if they don't, Go back to the boarding house and find it. Oh, man. This is not good for them. Yeah. So, of course, we still don't know where it is. But this this literally blew up the prosecution's theory that after murdering Abby and Andrew, Lizzie broke the handle off of the hatchet, burned it, and then cleaved the blade, followed by a dip into the smoldering ashes of the fire. Then she concealed the handleless hatchet in the box in the cellar. So from here on out, the prosecution would not be able to say with confidence that they had the murder weapon in their possession without drawing attention to the contradictory statements of the officers they put on the stand. So this is a huge day for the defense. What a mess. I know you're not supposed to compare testimonies. You know, you don't let witnesses, even police officers, I'm going to say this, you say, you don't do that. That's improper. But what, what a, what a freaking, what a mess. Well, we actually have a clip from our conversation with Kara. And we'll talk a little bit more about that weapon. Well, one, it was probably a hatchet, not an axe, right? That an axe would have been easier because there'd be more leverage. You know, there's some theories that it could have been an, an iron flat 
or flat iron. It was a very heavy piece of metal that would be heated. And that's what Lizzie was, for example, using iron in the anchor shifts on the day of. And then, so that's why she didn't get her chores done. <laughs> <laughs> and I find myself kind of going back and forth. They didn't find the weapon. They just said, here are some weapons that could have been the weapon. The most likely one is this handleless hatchet. But they never really showed that that was absolutely the weapon. <sighs> so here they are, police witnesses contradicting each other regarding the discovery of this handleless hatchet. Officer William Medley now states that he found the handleless hatchet in the cellar among a box this of odds and ends. Two people have already said they found it. Yes. Medley says he showed it to Captain Desmond, wrapped it in a brown paper bag, bring down to the police station. The next witness, Captain Desmond, he goes on to state that he found the hatchet and then wrapped it up in the brown oh paper bag. Oh my god. Oh my god. Officer George Seaver, he was the one who also examined Lizzie's dresses, the 12 to 15 in total, but he couldn't recall seeing a blue dress. By the way, (laughs) (laughs) Kara makes it perfectly clear that both Lizzie and Emma together owned 10 blue dresses. So there are a lot of blue dresses here, and this guy didn't remember seeing even a one. So he's not a police fashionista. All right, Officer Seaver would go on to misplace the memorandums regarding the dresses in addition to one another regarding the blood splatter at the murder scene. So people are just misplacing things left and right. Idea what they're doing here. It's really sloppy work. Intriguingly, either Fleet or Malati must have lied about finding the handleless hatchets the day before, Medley and Desmond attesting to find it as well. Mm -hmm. So who the heck are the jurors going to believe? Everybody found it. Nobody mm-hmm. found it. Who mm-hmm. found it? Somebody found it. They don't know who found it. And which blue dress? Yeah, we it's a mess. Know. It is really, it is really a mess. Kara is keen to point out that the other officer's description of the package itself that is brought to the police station to Marshall Hilliard doesn't match either. Mm-hmm. It's just a mess. At this point, the only thing that is consistent is the inconsistent testimony about the chain of custody. Listen, it was Elizabeth Jordan who has the final word about what to say about this hoodoo hatchet. It was upon the three and a half inch edge that this useful little household tool that the case of the Commonwealth would split. Yeah. So now we move into day seven of the trial and the crowds return after the weekend. It's literally like everyone's favorite new Netflix series. They're just looking to binge. Absolutely. We just see the same people coming back and back. And today we have a prop. You know, we tried to find out when, like, a chain of custody procedure had been established because there is literally nothing to protect the evidence in this. So we have the damn bloody sofa that Andrew Borden was murdered on just sitting outside the courtroom, covered in a sackcloth, where anyone could just pick it up and examine the Victorian fabric underneath. Could you imagine, though, today... With all of the technology that we have to look at this, like, you could have had dander from somebody. You could have had fingerprints. You could have had other bodily fluids on there, like fibers, anything. And the fact that it's just sitting out there, it blows my mind. Lizzie must have felt just like the damn sofa. Her lawyers were actually going to go face-to-face with the judges to get her inquest testimony thrown out and not be used as evidence against her. And this would actually be out of the ears of the jury. Oh, yeah. The so the jury might never. Yeah. So it's it's very likely that they might not hear this. So let's review. Oh, okay. 
Lizzie's statements at the inquest were certainly contradictory and very detrimental to her character. No question. Not only was she shown to have the opportunity, she also had potential motive, the property dispute. Both are components that are necessary to be found guilty of murder. Not to mention that there was a consciousness of guilt. If Lizzie Borden did something an innocent person would not have done or failed to do, something an innocent person would have done in the same circumstances, then the act or omission would demonstrate this concept. Now the quote. Mm-hmm. Her lack of emotion or tears? Well, the prosecution believes so, in addition to the made-up sick note to Abby and the burning of the dress that she allegedly wore on that day. Her lack of emotion or tears? Well, yeah, that, that made her crazy too. And then the prosecution yep. also believed that, in addition to the made-up sick note to Abby and the burning of the dress that she allegedly wore on that, that day, all of this was just accumulating against her. Nolan declared that Lizzie testified at the inquest voluntarily, thus her statements must be admitted into evidence. And as the state is required to hold an inquest about deaths in suspicious circumstances, there is nothing sinister about the process. Lizzie wasn't under arrest at the time. She had consulted her attorney prior to any discussion with law enforcement. She was free to claim privilege about self-incrimination under the Massachusetts Constitution. But remember, Jennings, who tried to insert himself into the inquest in order to protect Lizzie's interests... His request was denied. It was. So while the defense agreed that a confession to a crime was admissible, Lizzie's inquest testimony was far from a confession and was much more of a denial. And far more importantly, the defense argued that Lizzie's testimony was involuntary and that was a coerced confession and that she was not advised as to her right to testify or not. Again, he wasn't allowed to help her at the inquest. Right. It's not like he was sitting there saying, you don't have to say anything. He wasn't allowed to room. So when she was subpoenaed to appear before the inquest under suspicion of murder, she was never cautioned about her right not to testify. It should have been the duty of the court, the district attorney, to advise her of her rights. Again, remember, the Miranda ruling wouldn't occur for another 73 years, so nobody's sticking up for these people. So Lizzie was, in fact, under constructive arrest, in custody with the only thing missing, the actual arrest warrant. But that arrest warrant was actually in Marshall Rufus Hilliard's pocket. Uh Uh-huh. And so Robinson also appeals to Lizzie's gender and uses it as a crutch. She's a defenseless young woman. She alone, a woman unguided by our counsel, confronted with the district attorney, watched by the city marshal, at all times surrounded by the police. As a female, she is so vulnerable to confusion and could not have known what she was doing. For Joe Howard, it was Lizzie's contradictory testimony that was proof she was a woman and not a murderer. Her confusion on the stand was that palpable. Remember when we talked about morphine? Right. She could have been taking it then. She could have been. She's still on her period then because that would lean to hysteria and just not not knowing what she's doing. Mm-hmm. The judges ultimately ruled that Lizzie's testimony would not become part of the trial itself. Slam. Yup. Bye. Striking her testimony. Mm-hmm. So there Oof. goes there goes some of motive and opportunity or some of the necessary pieces that they need in order to convict her. That's Absolutely. So... After the ruling, which is just absolutely terrible for the prosecution, we have Patrolman Joseph Hyde taking the stand, and he offers some interesting testimony here about Lizzie and Alice. So while on watch at the Borden home the night after the murders, he sees the ladies in the cellar around 8.45 p.m. One has a lamp, the other has a toilet pail. At 9, 9.05, Lizzie goes into the cellar alone. And what she did, I don't know. That's very intriguing. I mean, well, that's where the toilet was. And that's where also the bloody rags were. Yeah. Well, so, you could have been going I, down there I for that. I don't find that particularly... You know, everyone was like, oh, ooh, they were down in the basement. Sinister. Like, that's where the toilet is. Like, you know. 
All right. Anyway, the testimony of all the medical examiners who stated that Abby was killed first and the long time had passed between the deaths of the Bordens, the harder it would be for an unknown perpetrator to be in the house undetected. So that was major for the prosecution in order to prove. This is important, right? Dr. William Dolan just happened to be passing by the Borden home at 11.45 a.m. He reports that Andrew's hands were still warm. Bright red blood was oozing from his wounds. He had eight to ten wounds in his head. When he examined Abby lying on her stomach on the the left side of her face, her body was cooler to the touch, Mm -hmm. the blood much thicker, redder than Andrew's. They took photographs of the bodies. And they would send Andrew and Abby's stomachs off to Professor Wood at Harvard with the two jars of milk. Question... Why did no one take photographs of Lizzie and Bridget? No one probably thought to do it. Because you know what? If we had a photograph of Lizzie, guess what? We'd know what the hell she was wearing. <laughs> I would answer. I'm sorry. I, I would answer the it, question. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Hmm. When we interviewed Kara, this is what she had to say. Uh, I, guess, I guess just the, the theory would be that she, she saw whoever came in, you know, or whoever came in and spoke to her. That it's because of the blow that's facing her that that's more on the front. That's more consistent with turning to see somebody who you know, as opposed to you know, crazy looking stranger with an axe coming in trying to run away. It's a good point. Yeah. Dr. Dolan also examines this small little hatchet to wood axes, a claw hammer hatchet that were found in the immediate search after the murders. And he saw what he thought to be rust or blood on the claw hammer implement. He sends that off to Professor Wood at Harvard, too. And a large package containing Lizzie's skirts where the drop of blood was located. And Dr. Dolan would perform the autopsies, removing the heads of the departed, which he gets gets all of it. So Karen describes in detail what is going to be an extremely important part of the story because of the murder weapon and the opportunity. So they make plaster casts of the heads to show the position of the wounds, really a gruesome exhibit for the trial. Mr. Borden had 10 wounds to his head, ranging from two to four and a half inches long, and they're all marked with blue ink. The attack on Mrs. Borden had even been more vicious. There were 18 head wounds in total, 13 of which went through her skull. The wounds raged in size from half an inch to five and a half inches. The right side of her skull also displayed a crushing injury. So it may seem that there's a bit more rage associated in this one. But as we've already seen with the Golden State Killer case, one didn't need to know the victims in order to kill with an unremorseful rage. This didn't need to be a crime of passion, one built on years of hate. It could also be the other side of the coin. Knowlton asked Dr. Dolan a critical question. Were the wounds you found on the skull of Mr. Borden such that could be inflicted with a hatchet by a woman of ordinary strength? That answer would be yes. And in our discussion with Kara about hatches versus axes and Lizzie's ability, she said the following. Right. I thought, you know, when I first looked at this case, I really thought it was uh, pretty obvious what happened. And that this was really just a story of people not being able to accept that somebody like Lucy Borden could have done such a thing. And that's still a big part of the story, but I take the point, and I find myself kind of going back and forth. They didn't find the weapon. They just said, here are some weapons that could have been the weapon. The most likely one is this handleless hatchet. But they never really showed that that was absolutely 
And then the only explanation was really, well, you know, she knows the house a lot better than we do, so she could have hidden it somewhere. And there were only so many hiding places. Right. I think one of the medical experts explained that in terms of in terms of fitting the blade into the wound, that you needed something that was no bigger than the size of the handleless hatchet to make all of the wounds. That that hatchet could have made the bigger wounds. But some of the other weapons couldn't have made the smaller one. So day eight of the trial, Julian Ralph writes, The women create a hostile atmosphere in the courtroom, and in that cruel environment, the prisoner sits every day, the loneliest girl of wealth and social position in all America. Today would be another day of blood, skulls, and bowels. Wonderful. That's so, glory. So the prosecution needed a murder weapon. So after all this inconsistency, they needed it. If they could not pinpoint one of the weapons found in the search of the house, then they would need to come up with a theory that places Lizzie Borden in disposing of the weapon that was used in order to make anything stick. As Kara states, the absence of a murder weapon also seemed inconsistent with an outside murderer. It was one thing to imagine a murderer escaping into the midday traffic. It was quite another to imagine his carrying away a bloody hatchet. Unless he put it in a bag took his coat off, calmly walked out. Because people are still wearing heavy coats even though it's freaking hot out because that was what you did back in the day. Everyone wore layers of It was improper to wear t-shirts and shorts. Right. So Adams was able to break down Dolan on the stand by getting him to admit that maybe, maybe it was possible that the contents of the intestines were insufficient evidence to prove a definitive time of death. Hmm. Yeah, you still have coagulation, temperatures of the body, people finding the bodies fairly quickly. Unless Lizzie waited. That's another story. Right. As to the wounds of both Bordens, the defense needed its turn. It was time to use... What's that word we've been saying? Inconsistencies! The inconsistency of the number and size of the wounds would be useful in figuring out the actual murder weapon. Recap, Dolan said it was the claw hammer hatchet at the inquest. A day earlier, he preferred the hoodoo hatchet, the one without the handle. The claw hammer hatchet was roughly four and a half inches long, while the handleless hatchet, three and a half inches. So about um, an inch. Different there. Yep. So one of Abby's wounds was known to have been about two inches wide, and the rest much larger. Dolan agreed that nothing in the length of wounds is inconsistent with their having been inflicted by a weapon, for example, of three and one half inches in length. For Adams, it was much simpler. Is there anything unreasonable in a cutting edge four and a half inches in length? The hatchet also presented another issue entirely. Was it really sharp enough where it caused the gruesome bisection of Andrew's eye? So his eye was literally cut in half. Oh! So perhaps inconclusively based on trial transcripts, Dr. Dolan becomes flustered by the question. He also readily admitted that blood spatter would have been apparent on the perpetrator. So blood would have been everywhere. Yep. Hi. Try just doing the motion of uh, axing somebody with two hands over your head because I doubt somebody's going to do it with just one. Yeah. So Dolan described, whomever committed this horrible act of violence would have been standing at the head of the sofa, repeating blows left and right, and blood would have been everywhere, all over somebody. And he also believed that once Abby had been stricken down, the assailant stood over her prone body, inflicting those more devastating blows. But no matter what Adams did, Dolan remained steadfast on one point. No more than ordinary strength was required. While all the medical professionals agreed that a woman could have done this physically, it was the very brutality of the murders that favored the defense because they couldn't find that a woman could feasibly do this. Couldn't wrap their minds around that one. 
Dr. Edward Woods of Harvard. Now, Dolan had sent him samples to mm-hmm. look at. He looked at the milk. No poisons were found. So when Abby was fearful she'd been poisoned, that was not uh, the case. The claw hammer hatchet didn't quite fit the wounds, and it was negative for blood tests. The white dirt-like ashes, the white dirt-like ash on the hatchet could have been cleaned before the hatchet was broken. Okay. Advised that the blood on Lizzie's skirt was heavier on the outside than on the inside, but he couldn't rule out menstrual blood. Here we are again. Critical point, but the prosecution nor the defense wanted to emphasize it. And reporters were really vague on the subject, too. Go figure. Again, we're into the menstruation. We don't care to go in details. We all agree that the sickness ended Wednesday night. But we know that this made women vulnerable to lose their minds and commit crimes. So she's just a crazy lunatic murdering people. Mm -hmm. Remember that weird visit that she and Alice made to the cellar that night of the murders? Was it her monthly cycle? Not to mention the pail of bloody rags. How much blood does that need to be? You know, they just didn't want to go there. Dr. Frank Draper, another one of Harvard, he's the one who made the plaster casts. Jennings asked him how many blows penetrated Abby's skull. He said four. Lizzie put her head down and didn't even want to hear this. Mm -hmm. In a brief break, Lizzie was allowed to leave the courtroom when they were bringing in Andrew's skull. And it was lucky for her because his jaw actually fell off. Maybe he was trying to testify. I think he was trying to tell tell a story. Now, Draper did have kind of a cheery way of fitting the hatchets into the wounds on the skull, and he would, like, leave one sticking. It's a good thing she left the room. Yeah. The murder weapon blade that had the three and a half inches, the voodoo hatchet, the handleless hatchet, uh, he used that one as well. And he believed that Mrs. Borden had stood facing the assailant for the first blow, and then the assailant had stood over her, swinging away. He testified that Andrew's carotid artery had been severed. So blood spray. That he may have died quickly. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately for the defense, they did produce a hatchet um, with a handle for Draper to try to fit in the skull. It didn't fit as well that they thought that this is absolutely the murder weapon. And eh, I don't think we're ever going to know. Well, it was said that they tried to produce this other thing, but that handleless hatchet actually fit the best out of all of the weapons that they had. So it's very likely that that was the murder weapon. And here's a clip from our discussion with Kara. So we have another Harvard man, a lot of Harvard men. I mean, we are in Massachusetts. So we have Dr. David W. Cheever, and he agreed with all his colleagues on the key points, time of death interval between the murders, nature of the wounds, and most likely the murder weapon. What was different, though? He said the edge of the hatchet could have been shorter than three and a half inches, but not longer. So that kind of narrows it down. Okay. And the blows were made from right to left, few in the other direction. This would be wood chopping fashion, which is an activity seen as male. Or your Irish maidservant going to chop wood. Bridget, who chopped wood all the time. So here's a little criminology lesson that we're going to do here. So we all struggled in this trial to account for the female criminal. Women were less evolved emotionally, mentally. Um, They had an extreme lack of rational control when it came to their actions. Lombroso would actually revise his model of the born criminal to say that although there were fewer in number, the female born criminal would surpass their counterpart in cruelty. Must be our ability to hold grudges, right? Yeah. Especially for five years. Yeah. So madness becomes particularly acute at certain times, so when you're on your period. 
And Kara says, Lizzie Borden's arrest unsettles an ethnically and class-determined model of criminality, and as Jennings had argued at the preliminary hearing, outraged the natural course of things. So as a white upper-middle-class lady, Borden fell safely outside the evolutionary framework of degeneration that underlay 19th-century criminological discussions. Then they talk about her oversized jaw. Like, that was, that was one of the things that they noted that she must have been a criminal. Oh, yeah. I mean, are. so we're talking what? about the the axe, or I guess the motion of the axe back and forth. How was wood chopping? I mean, no attention ever really turned to Bridget. Like, they thought maybe she could have done it, but after they settled on Lizzie, like, no attention turned to her. Even still, it seems to me that men are greatly afraid of what women could be capable of if they saw them as equals. Is this why they didn't feel the need to give them much power back in the day? Hmm. So, our next witness is matron Hannah Reagan. You might remember that she heard that argument between Lizzie and Emma, where Lizzie heatedly says, Emma, you gave me away, haven't you? And Emma denies it. And Lizzie says again, you have, and I will let you see I won't give in one inch. Well, the prosecution just let that lay there. They just let it hang Mm -hmm. and let it just weave into the minds of the jurors and the people in the courtroom. It could be the one thing that proved that the sisters were not in complete solidarity as they let everyone believe. Once Jennings began the cross-examination, he was determined to break down her story from every angle. Ultimately, he was able to deduce that while the matron could recall this piece of conversation verbatim, She couldn't recall any visitors that had appeared that day. So next up, we just kind of retouch uh, on buying prussic acid. So the defense team was trying to have this evidence, just like Lizzie's inquest testimony, thrown out. However, for the prosecution, this was again another key piece of evidence as it showed premeditation and intent to kill. They didn't want to lose that. So we will note that the prosecution did have a fairly solid case. But it may have been more or less based on hearsay or what Lizzie said regarding the dislike she held for her stepmother. There's also the attempt to buy prussic acid, her odd actions after the murders, the bloody rags in the cellar, the burning of the dress, so many little things, these inconsistencies that were trying to add up. Kara explains that what was most important to the prosecution were cases in which the defendant prepared to commit a crime with one weapon, but then used a different one. Here we can note that Lizzie had spoken to Alice Russell about her fears that someone would intentionally harm her father and her family, in addition to the food poisoning. Was this possibly her first attempt at trying to kill her stepmother with poison? And it just didn't work? I don't know. Honestly, it's a serious setback for the defense, and the judges actually rule in favor of the prosecution to allow this and to, to allow the jury to hear this. And as Julie and Ralph pointed out, taken all together, this was actually Lizzie's worst day. I think they're going to say that a few times, mm-hmm. not realizing what's coming up next. Well, it's, oh, just this like the, it's just like the trial of the century, 1893, yeah. trial of the century. What about all the other ones that are trialists? Oh, no, no, yeah, no, no. This no. is now the trial of the century, and mm-hmm. this is her worst day. And No, no, this is her worst day. We keep getting to the worst day. Well, the uh, poison cliffhanger promised a lot of drama for our true crime enthusiasts who are clamoring at the courthouse doors, trying to gain a seat in the courtroom on the second floor. The judges wished to hear the testimony about the prussic acid without the jury present, and to the relief of the defense, the court would exclude this evidence. So they said that they would allow it, but they wanted to hear about some of the uses of prussic acid. We don't want to bore everyone, but um, that's exactly. ultimately why they decided not to let it 
let it happen. So that second piece that was super important, done, done. So they've lost her inquest testimony, and now they've lost her premeditation. Mm-hmm. Now that's pretty bad. Yeah. Knowlton had been thwarted by Robinson's nimble lawyering, preventing his expert witnesses from being qualified to answer his questions. He intended to use the prussic acid evidence to be the cherry on top, but instead he wound up resting his case at 10.30 a.m. without the jury hearing that the woman tried to purchase poison. And Lizzie Borden positively beamed. So later that same day, the defense opens. Andrew Jennings emphasized all the more favorable things about Lizzie, her reputation, good she did within the community, her general demeanor. His major touch point was that the prosecution's case was wholly and absolutely circumstantial. Each point that Jennings was able to make against the prosecution was applauded by our prominent reporters. There is not one particle of direct evidence against Lizzie A. Borden. This meant no blood, no weapon. The police were ridiculed with their attempt to bring in one hatchet or axe or other weapon after another to try to match it to the head wounds on the neat skulls of the departed Bordens. As for exclusive opportunity and motive, well... If Andrew was not seen for part of his walk, an unknown perpetrator could have easily evaded onlookers. We already know that Lizzie hated Abby, but most certainly not her father. Could she have really done it? I mean, Lizzie was seen with tears in her eyes when we were going through the parts about Andrew. Absolutely. So the defense begins by opening with witnesses who are able to testify to odd noises and even odder persons in the area around the time of the murders. In that fairly comical exchange upon cross-examination, Knowlton committed a faux pas. Marianne Chagnon was born in French-speaking Canada, and there was an obvious language barrier. Instead of trying to use better words or be able to convey a little bit better, he just kept raising his voice and shouting at her as if to make her understand him better. Oh, so, no. This is, I remember I'm going this, yes. here. Nolan asked her if the noise sounded like pounding. She replied, what is it? Nolan repeats the question. She replied, like? He repeated, pounding. I don't understand the expression. Nolan yelling, pounding, don't you understand what pounding is? Pounding? Yes. No, I don't understand it. Don't know the word. You don't understand that we're pounding. To pound. Pounding? Nope. Don't understand it. <laughs> I don't think she understands that word. No, she doesn't. I don't think she understands <laughs> that word. Oh, my goodness. So, the next series of weird characters that were produced around the Borden home... A Mary Durfee testified to seeing a strange man arguing with Andrew, saying, You've cheated me and I'll fix you. Mm. All right, two men had seen a man passed out on the side steps of the house the night before the murder, and they were unable to rouse him. Hmm. Mark Chase introduced to a stranger in a brown hat and black coat in the front of the Borden homes at 11 o'clock in the morning of the murders was waiting in an open buggy. Dr. Benjamin Hardy said that he went by the home about 1030 a.m. on August 4th, and he had seen a medium-sized man with a very pale complexion with his eyes fixed up on the sidewalk, and he was acting strangely. Two others, sisters, would corroborate seeing a similar young man in the area that day. A lot of shadow characters. A lot of odd people going around, which kind of matches with Lizzie said. Mm -hmm. She said she had seen someone the night before when she came home. Now, Hyman Lubinsky is an ice cream peddler. And he took to the stand, offering further comedic relief, as he too is a foreigner. We know how popular they Nolan's are. Nolan's obviously yep. a nativist. Yes. And Nolan is not good with dealing with people whose English is not perfect. While he couldn't offer an exact time, he did state that he had seen Lizzie walking from the barn to the house at some point that morning. Now, there's no buggy radios to tell time. He guessed it was probably after 11 a.m., based on the times where he normally would have been in that area of his ice cream route. 
Charles Gardner, owner of the stable Lubinsky's horses were kept, corroborated his estimate at the time about 11.10 a.m. So, Lizzie says she was coming from the barn, heard a noise, and came in the house. Mm -hmm. Joseph LeMay, who required a French interpreter, because we know that Nolan can't speak to foreigners, because they're all deaf, (laughs) evidently, was a farmer who lived up north, and he claimed on August 16th, he saw a man sitting on a rock muttering to himself, Poor Mrs. Borden. This was roughly a week and a half after the murders, but LeMay swore that he saw what appeared to be spots of blood on the man's shirt. When LeMay tried to speak with the man, he jumped up and threatened LeMay with a hatchet. After some tense moments, the man with the hatchet ran off. It was at this point that, that Knowlton objected and the jury was escorted from the courtroom again. Oh, he's coming out of there. You can imagine. He argued that this was more or less hearsay. An out-of-court statement offered the truth of what it asserts. And while LeMay's account was serious enough for the Commonwealth to search for this strange man, the judge, however, decided to recess and consider the matter until the next day. They're always recessing. So it was a good day for Lizzie. Joe Howard summed up the day. The entire day has been one of cheer, laughter, good-looking witnesses, bright sayings, and a general upliftment for the line of defense. Not to mention this woman's on trial for her life. I don't know. Yeah, so it's only a murder <laughs> trial with, yeah. with capital punishment as the, the possible you know punishment. So that Friday, the next day after deliberating, the judges decide not to allow LeMay's testimony to be heard by the jury. So we're getting a little bit of a slight setback for the defense now. Yep. But it's not necessarily a detriment. The weather had at least abated that day. Lizzie was looking lighter. And Howard described her as at her very best in looks and spirits. But she still looked like a bright-eyed, wide-awake old maid. Come on. As the defense was preparing for the day, a strange incident occurred. Some boys were out playing baseball in the vicinity of the Borden property and climbed up onto the roof of John Crow's barn to retrieve a lost baseball. What they found up there was far more intriguing than a baseball. It was a shingle hatchet, one with a three and a half inch blade, three and a half inches, the same size that was thought to have killed the Bordens. This newly found weapon had a slight coloring of guilt, indicating that the hatchet was at one time used as an ornament or was quite new and lost or discarded. Was it a most important coincidence that Dr. Draper had found trace evidence of this guilt in one of Abby's head wounds? Perhaps. I think that's critically important. They even told Knowlton that Mrs. Borden, at least, was killed with a brand new hatchet because that guilt was on there. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of funny, and they thought maybe the boys had actually thrown it up on top of the roof to cause a disturbance. Either way, we asked Kara finding an axe with guilt had basically ruled out the others as the murder weapons, and whatever happened to that axe found up on the barn. When they found the glit in Abby's wound, that kind of ruled out those weapons, didn't it? I think that that's an important point, that it would have been something that wasn't much used, right, to still have that coating on the hatchet or the axe. I think that the handle is hatchet, you know, would still fit because it was made to look rather than being old. Somebody asked me at a, at a reading that they haven't really studied the hatchet that was found on top of the barn. The answer is, I don't know. That's held on to it. They didn't trust the police uh, and they thought it would just confuse things. And then I don't know what happened to it after that. The Fulmer Historical Society doesn't have it. So the guilt-ridden barn axe disappeared, and Kara wrote that if the murderer of Andrew Borden and his wife escaped from the Borden premises by the rear, he could easily have thrown the hatchet to the place where it was found. 
However, great skepticism existed, and the Fall River Daily Globe suggested that the note which Mrs. Borden is allegedly to have received from a sick friend might also be found up on that roof as well. Yeah, yep, let's go up the roof. We'll find all the missing evidence up there. Mm-hmm. There it is. All right, so Charles Sawyer takes the stand. Now, remember, he was the impromptu police guard who was put on duty for seven hours because he happened to be there. He was essentially deputized as a passerby. Mm, being and, nosy. Uh, yeah, he was. He was. Okay. On cross-examination, he did admit that he locked the interior door leading to the cellar because he was afraid someone might be hiding there. Again, the doors, the locks, you know, who knows? He's supposed to stand out guard. Why is he down in the cellar locking doors? I guess he's well, snooping. Nosy. He's, he's snooping. He's nosy. And what if there was someone hiding? Yeah, you're right. Who knows? John Manning, the reporter from the Fall River Daily Herald, and Walter Stevens of the Fall River Daily Evening News, both concurred that the cellar door had been locked from the outside, contradicting previous testimony. Mm-hmm. There's what so the many hell? contradictions. There's Nobody so knows many. what's going on. This is critical stuff. And this is my favorite here. Where okay. Manning would also go to provide testimony against matron Mrs. Reagan, the prison matron, with corroborating testimony from two other reporters, Thomas Hickey and John R. Caldwell, in addition to Marianne Holmes, who has known Lizzie from childhood, and many, many Borden sister friends who denied the conversation that she overheard between Emma and Lizzie. So her statement was effectively dismantled. Yeah, it all got thrown out the window because so many people had just heard that she had said, I didn't hear it. I didn't hear that. I don't know. I did. No, I did. Yes, I did. No. So as Kara stated, these witnesses were mere appetizers. The main course was being served. Emma Borden finally takes the stand. Mm-hmm. And Julian Ralph writes of Emma, she looked like the slender age double of her sister. And Joe Howard added the description, she's a little over 40 years of age and looks it. A prim little old-fashioned New England maid dressed with an exceeding neatness in plain black with the impress of a Borden in every feature. Elizabeth Jordan also notes that the sisters' eyes met as they faced each other. No sign of recognition passed between them. Hmm. For all intents and purposes, though, Emma was the key defense witness, and she was going to provide the necessary character support that Lizzie needed. I'm sensing maybe a little bit of a break here, because that statement that Elizabeth made, like maybe they're not so solid as we all thought they were. Maybe not. I'm sure they're also stressed. Well, Emma would point to the fact that both she and her sister had healthy bank accounts. What would be the need for Lizzie to kill their father? She also spoke about the ring that Andrew wore around his finger. Yes, that's true. So this kind of is consistent throughout the book, and it was around his finger when he was buried. He never actually wore anything to signify his marriage to Abby. And don't forget, Lizzie's middle name was Andrew. She was his namesake. And it was probably because maybe he thought he was not going to have any more children. So she was the youngest. No boys were coming. So no matter what, though, she always seemed to get what she wanted from her father. So why would she kill him? Now, Emma declared that she and Lizzie were both helpful when the police searched their home and they gave a comprehensive list of all the dresses that she and Lizzie owned to Andrew Jennings. Mm-hmm. The dress in question, the one with the paint on it, Emma testifies that it was she who told Lizzie to destroy the dress okay. as a means of getting rid of it. And Alice Russell, she hadn't swooned or cried out when Lizzie burnt the dress. So what did she Emma, upset about? <laughs> she said nothing, actually. So, you know, what yeah. was she upset about? It had been decided that Alice would have informed Mr. Haskam that Alice agreed to a falsehood, that all the dresses were not accounted for, and on returning... Alice's remarks that burning the dress was the worst thing Lizzie could have done. 
little bit of a drama queen or a, a guilty bit. conscience going probably, on here? Probably a little bit of both. Upon cross-examination, Knowlton did his best to break Emma down, but she was unbreakable. She was cool, calm, collected, and didn't give one inch. Howard wrote, she stood with perfect self-possession on the stand, answered with deliberation and decision every question, met the skillful cross-examination of Mr. Knowlton without defiance, but with an evident determination to have the meaning of her well-weighed words thoroughly understood. So after Emma stepped down, the rest of the witnesses seemed, in Kara's word, anticlimactic. Of note was Dr. Bowen's wife, Phoebe. She testified that she did not see a single spot of blood on Lizzie. Had she been swinging an axe round into people, there may have been a bit of a mess, but there's no blood. No blood. And she also noted Lizzie's reaction to the whole affair, saying that she was sitting in a chair with her head against Miss Russell. She said, I thought she had fainted. She was so white until I saw her lip urchin quiver and then I knew she hadn't fainted. So this is one of the more appealing statements to Lizzie's character after, or her demeanor after the murders. She is upset. Yeah. She is struggling here. And then finally, after a series of lesser witnesses and roughly two weeks in the courtroom, the announcement was made that the evidence was closed on both sides. And now the closing arguments. Now the crowd on this day was the largest that the New Bedford Courthouse had ever seen. It was described as more like a surging mob trying to gain admittance to some big show. Lizzie was nervous. She should be. Mm -hmm. George Robinson once again came to her defense. He adjusted his voice to speak to the jury, primarily made up of farmers. He twanged his voice and he yawed his last vows and he said again and again some weren't for not all to ingratiate himself with the jury. Robinson made a show of the police being under pressure to find and convict someone for these mm-hmm. horrible murders. Somebody. Even if it was the child, the daughter of one of the victims. He explained that once a theory possesses our minds, you know how tenacious it holds in place. It's kind of bias that police officers have because their day-to-day is filled with dealing with criminals. So they almost expect the worst out of people. While police investigation is still in its early stages... Robinson and the press still had the opportunity to undermine law enforcement as they lacked the wherewithal to conduct a proper investigation. Fun fact. Hey, is this still true today? Yeah. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. To Robinson's advantage and Kara's observations, he established that Lizzie is an orphan and one in need of paternal guidance and protection, a ward of the court, one that all figures of justice need to protect. Not to mention that she's a 32-year-old woman. But, hey, look at you. I'm still children, but what do I know? Yeah, I mean, you're a spinster and an old man. I know. You you, you can't think for yourself. Well, it's an ironic statement and a clever one, considering that Lizzie's on trial for killing her father and stepmother, making herself an orphan. In addition to establishing her poor orphanhood, Robinson takes great care to establish the ideal of a male murderer. Mm Mm-hmm as the acts for women here were morally and physically impossible. Robinson's a really great orator here. And I think he he just really, I think, clinches it. Like if he wasn't there, it it could have probably turned out differently. He said something that just proved how monotonous and how boring life was for middle-class women in the 19th century. He said he transformed Lizzie into the paradynamic angel in the house. Her lack of alibi, proof of her feminine normality. They say she was in the house in the forenoon. Well, that may look to you like a very wrong place to be in, but it is her home. I don't know where I would want my daughter to be. 
than to say that she was at home attending to the ordinary vocations of life as a dutiful member of the household. So by being at the crime scene at the exact time the murders took place, the jury should find Lizzie innocent. Additionally, well, she's home. Yeah, she's there at the murder scene, but she should be there, so why would we accuse her? Right. Additionally, while we strive for consistency in statements as it tests the veracity of the account of the witnesses, Robin tells the jury that varying versions of witness accounts are a sign of truth. Kind of contradicts the inconsistencies of the prosecution, yeah? Yep. Um, yep. We know Nolan had found it literally incredulous that Lizzie could not recount her whereabouts, but Robinson chalked it up to a woman's problems. Mm-hmm. I know the example he gave was remembering the number of times one went up and down the stairs. Like, I, I don't know how many. I don't even know what I did this morning. How many times did you walk into the living room? Yeah, I would have <laughs> no idea. What? And what times did what time this morning did you walk into the living room? I'd be, I, I don't know. Tell you, especially if they don't have anything to really judge the time by. Yeah. But what Robinson doesn't tell the jurors, but leaves for Kara to include, is the fact that Andrew was looking at various properties in the area where the Upper Crust of Fall River resided. This might have been to placate the girls. If so, did Lizzie know? Or was Lizzie just so drowning in her hate that the possibility of living anywhere with her stepmother was unbearable? Mm. Robinson touched on a few more thoughts. But he flew a little too close to the sun. Listen, when he started into the relationship between father and daughter, that it was a little bit more like husband and wife yeah. with the rings that Andrew always wore. That, I have to I cringed. Yes, that was a little creepy. Yeah, I cringed. And I don't know if I'm taking my 21st century sentiments and just not reading that right, but... No, it, was, it, 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 it's cringy. Yeah, it was. it's definitely cringeworthy, right? You know, and then he goes on to say that she may have been unbalanced or disturbed or disabled because of her period again. Yes, yes, we know. Additionally, he ridiculed the prosecution for thinking that Lizzie might have killed her father and stepmother in the nude. <laughs> because this isn't going to be like the headline tomorrow. No. What could be more shocking than a middle-class white lady killing her parents and she did so while she's naked? Yeah. Listen, yeah, no. <laughs> ra- read it back in Robinson. Don't give them anything else more to think about. It hasn't been scandalous enough, but now you've thrown in. A little bit of incest and now a little bit of nudity. Let's just not do that. Kara said that Robinson's uh, formulation left the jury with no rational scientific explanation for Lizzie Borden's guilt. He had foreclosed a medical diagnosis that would deny Lizzie Borden's responsibility, even as it affirmed her guilt. And while we're reminded that many things that were brought forth in the trial, the side door was unlocked, numerous hatchets on the property... (laughs) The strangers spotted in the vicinity of the house were most reminded that Lizzie is a woman, and as a woman, she could be one of the jurors' own wives or daughters. How would you feel if this happened to them? So it's not up to the jury to unravel a mystery, but to find Lizzie guilty or not guilty by the evidence presented at the trial. They are ultimately left with one choice. Is she a daughter Or is she a fiend? Well, it was a little bit cringy. I found the closing argument for the defense more appealing and more straightforward. But the reporters, though, like Ralph and Howard and Jordan, all said that it was lackluster. Oh, I didn't think it was lackluster. So, well, we're going to move into Nolan's right now, which I think he he literally went through like four hours of testimony and closing statements. But I found his to be... a mistake. No, the reporters loved it. Well, they might have loved it. They loved it. Four hours, the jury's already heard all this. Yeah, so after... 
But after four hours of Robinson explaining the weaknesses of the prosecution's case, Jose Nolan comes before the jury for the last time. So he gets the last word. Remember, he and his team, they lost two important rulings that would ultimately hang Lizzie, her inquest testimony and her possible attempts at purchasing prussic acid. He starts off by saying, It is no ordinary criminal that we are trying today. It is one of the rank of lady, the equal of your wife and mine, of whom such things have never been suspected or dreamed before. He calls to the forefront examples of unlikely criminals, businessmen accused of embezzlement and fraud, a Methodist minister, and Jesse Pomeroy, just a boy, but a murderer nonetheless. Finally, we have an example of a female, Sarah Jane Robinson, who was accused of poisoning seven members of her family, but only convicted of murdering one. And Kara writes, although he implied that he intended to theorize a criminal lady, he had not. Instead, he separated out the four most disturbing factors, class, religion, youth, and sex, from Lizzie's identity to argue that none of them was, in and of itself, a barrier to criminal behavior. He goes on to defend himself and his colleagues, saying, A blue coat does not make a man any better. It ought not make him any worse. And he admitted that there had been mistakes during the investigation. But the police went about their work as honestly and faithfully as they could. And he builds up to why circumstantial evidence is so important and the fact that Lizzie had exclusive opportunity. She was in the house and had motive. Was it enough to kill? While we can debate more on the nature of the wounds, Robinson described them as feminine, weak, puttering, badly aimed, nervous blows. It was the hand of a person strong only in hate and the desire to kill. Their living situation was a cancer. Imagine living in the same house. Yeah. The judges decided to stop Nolan and have him finish his closing arguments the next day. Tuesday, June 20th, 1893, was the last day of the trial. As always, the people of Fall River were clamoring to be let in to see the final arguments. The newspapers there. The Fall River Daily Herald is not kind to the women in attendance that day. The pushing and the struggling of the new bed for women are a disgrace to femininity. Hmm. Bit harsh? Wonder what they'd say about our Netflix cues today. Hmm. <laughs> we're making murderers? Hmm. All right, so Nolton begins again by reminding the jury that he does not have to prove motive. He's insistent that Lizzie intended to kill Abby, but that she had to kill Andrew out of necessity. So that's different. Yes, this is new. Although there is no real evidence to prove that Andrew was about to make a will, Nolton contemplates that this stoked the embers of Lizzie's hate and erupted into a fiery blaze, which caused her to hack away. He compromised that because of this, Lizzie was responsible for the crime, yet ultimately not responsible for her father's death. It was the fleas. Mm -hmm. Then we get to the burn dress. He argues that the dress handed over to the police that day was not the one she had been wearing. Kara asks a good question. Where was the paint-stained dress before Alice Russell saw it destroyed? Knowlton doesn't disappoint. It was not where the officers could find it. It was concealed, and it had been good enough to keep through May, through June, through July, through the first weeks of August. A point to surely contemplate. What would happen if it were Bridget Sullivan in the hot seat as opposed to Lizzie? All right, Knowlton finalizes. We get down now to the elements of ordinary crime. We get hate. We get malice. We get absurd. We get impossible alibis. We get contradictory stories. What's the defense? Nothing. I stop and think, and then I say again, nothing. Rise, gentlemen. Rise to the altitude of your duty. Powerful. It is. 
After a brief recess, the judge advises Lizzie that she can speak to the jury. And she says, I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. And I'm pretty sure this is the only thing she ever says during the trial. Mm -hmm. Yep. She remains silent and stoic throughout, except for a few minutes here and there, really. Yeah. And upon being instructed by the judge on deliberation to find a verdict, the jury gets confined to a room, as is normal, to decide Lizzie's fate. After an hour and a half, they were ready. As to Lizzie's demeanor at this point in time, one commenter stated, At no point during the trial has the prisoner's almost supernatural courage so appalled the spectators at this sublime moment of her entry into the courtroom to hear her doom. When asked for the verdict, the foreman actually interrupts the judge and announces <gasps> Lizzie Borden was not guilty. Not Guilty. guilty. The courtroom erupts into a frenzy, whooping, hollering. It carries out into the rest of the building, out the front door, and down into the streets. I think they said you could hear it almost a mile and a half away, or that's how far it traveled. Lizzie, I believe it. Lizzie slumped into her chair as if she had been shot, put her head down, and cried. We even asked Kara what she thought was the weakest link in the prosecution's case. The, you know, the weapon and the lack of any kind of blood on Lizzie Ward? Yeah. I think if you're you're a defender in this day and age, you know, you're not relying on the fact that a, a woman couldn't do something like that, then that's the most important point is that is that it's just hard to see how anyone could have done it and escaped without a lot of blood. You know, on the other hand there is this dress that she burned and there's also the pail in the basement with the bloody cloths or towels. I find it just so striking. I can see why the defense didn't want to talk about it, but you would think that the prosecution would offer it as kind of explanation. Uh, I mean, it, to me, it seemed like they're just like, oh, we don't want to look at that. It seems to me there's something sort of more fundamentally upsetting about this than whether or not there's really enough evidence. The idea that someone who seems so normal and, you know, and is just sitting there day after day at the trial and... We know that she led a completely, for her time, normal life before and after. I'm not so sure that she would be convicted now. It would be a lot closer of a case because, you know, we wouldn't have the automatic assumption that she couldn't do it because she was a woman. You often hear crazy stories about jury deliberations. There, there definitely was no shortage of rumors here. Someone bought the verdict. Men fought over the verdict. Threats were made. However, it was actually much more boring than that. Or within minutes of being in the same room together, something that they were not wholly unfamiliar with, they found themselves unanimous on a not guilty verdict. But out of respect for the court, they remained in that room for an hour and a half to give the appearance of contemplative deliberation. And as we wind down, we notice the reaction of the people. Cheering, yelling, crying. It's all very emotional. Sheriff Wright never saw the people rising in their seats and waving their handkerchiefs in unison with their voices because his eyes were so full of tears and were completely blinded. Jennings brought Lizzie to her feet and Robinson threw an affectionate arm around Lizzie giving the illusion of a father with his beloved daughter. And Joe Howard said, The extraordinary invisible affection between these two persons will always remain as one of the refreshing memories of the trial. I don't think so. But we'll, we'll say, sure. <coughs> But the jury even had visible affection for Lizzie and shook hands with her on the way out. Ran down to the local bar to get a drink. I don't blame it. Yeah. I, I really don't blame him. As to the reporter, she didn't say much, but gave her warmest regards to Julian Ralph, the man who from the start portrayed her actions with unerring skill and judgment. So we have people, the upper crust of society, cheering, crying. Oh my gosh, Lizzie's innocent. Thank God. Justice has been done. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
a, a, an innocent woman saved from a terrible fate. What was Lizzie to do now that her ordeal was over? Well, we'll find out about that next time. Second cast. Yeah. So Lizzie's acquitted on June 20th, 1893. But what do you think? So in two weeks on second cast, we will be sharing our own theories on who killed Andrew and Abby Borden. And then we'll review some of the others that are out there floating around, and especially the ones that Kara touches on in the book. Now, if you want to get a head start on our next book, we're going to be reading To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. This is a story of a lesser-known serial killer in Montana named Wayne Nance, an absolutely deplorable human being who will be hooked as Costin leads us on our journey through Nance's life and career as a serial killer with an ending that will leave you with your mouth hanging open. So please send your theories about Lizzie Borden to Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. We'd be happy to incorporate any of them into our discussion. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And again, Murder Shelf Book Club. And subscribe to our feed on your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and our own little Podbean. And we don't want you to miss a thing. If you have time and you're able to, please leave us a five-star review. That would make us very happy. Every little thing helps us to grow. Until next time, bookies, happy reading. Happy early Valentine's Day.